Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Harry Brighouse, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Harry Brighouse, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Hi. Well, let's get straight into it. Now, uh, uh, tell us, how did you come to start asking philosophical questions of education? So, there are really two parts to it. Um, I grew up in a educating household. My dad was a school superintendent um, in the UK. Um, and then I went to college to study philosophy. I was trained as a political philosopher as a, for my PhD. Uh, and then I married a teacher. So most of my life I've lived with intimately with somebody who was basically obsessed with education. Uh, I got a tenure-track job in a philosophy department, and I didn't do any work on education initially, but I knew a lot about education, um, and some of my colleagues encouraged me to put that to philosophical use, which was quite... Uh, pleasing really because philosophy is quite a conservative discipline and philosophy of education mm. hasn't been something that everybody does the way that the way that you know every, every department has somebody who does bioethics sure. every department has uh somebody who can do say aesthetics sure. uh but philosophy of education isn't like that my colleagues really encouraged me and through and as time went on i got much more involved with the empirical work mm. I also did have a colleague, Fran Schrag, who was in Ed Policy Studies um, and who sort of guided me. I, I knew he was a philosopher of education, so I had a vague idea what philosophy of education was, and he guided me sort of very gently um, into the field. Mm. Now, in that transition, as you've just described it, between uh, initially doing the work that you were hired to do and then sort of uh, leaning into some of your understandings of education, what have been some of the well, recurring uh, or uh, animating impulses uh, in the questions that you ask in your scholarship? So I think the two questions that I was most... the two philosophical questions I was most interested in right from the beginning of really working on education were what kinds of rights and permissions should parents have to shape the values of their children and what kind of role should schools play in shaping children's values or reacting to the way that parents shape their values. So that's sort of one set of questions. Second set of questions concerned the distribution of educational opportunities. We live in, as you know, in a, in a society, like most societies, where there's a great uh, gap between the educational opportunities and accomplishments of some and those of others. Uh, and so I was very interested in... It's a very standard question in political philosophy. How should any good be distributed? So I was very interested in that. I was also, at that time, and I still am some, but I was very, it was the 1990s and the school choice movement was really getting going. And in the UK, the school choice, the UK, the school choice movement had already 
basically determined uh, policy. So I was very interested in the sort of policy questions around school choice, and especially around, uh, in my own state, Wisconsin, uh, it was the state which, uh, in Milwaukee, we have the first and largest school voucher system, which came into um, came into place in 1991, just before I moved to Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, so I was very interested in th the, those policy questions and questions of justice around those kinds of policy questions. Uh, yes, I, I could imagine that uh, questions of justice are peppered throughout the concerns that you've raised. But uh, let's return to the first of the issues that you mentioned here. Um, why ought we care about the ways in which parents, teachers, or schools more broadly impact the values of children? Well, why ought we take that up uh, as a, a topic of some concern? Yeah, so that's, I think my views, both about what the answers to those questions are and why they're important, have changed. Um, so initially, my interest was just from the point of view of the child. Uh, children in complex, diverse societies uh, have an interest in being able to reflect critically on the kinds of values, traditions, practices that they are raised in. And I think not just to reflect, but to be able to adjust and revise. Uh, so, but a lot of parents do not raise their children to do that. So, you know, the paradigm case is the religious parent, the evangelical Christian parent who homeschools their kid, who doesn't want their kid to have any connection with. But around where I live, uh, nearly everybody's secular, and they send their children to secular schools, which the state pays for, and they do not encourage their children to have to explore spirituality or to explore religion, whereas all of them would say, oh, we want our children to be critically reflective, right? So unlike a lot of a lot of Christian parents who would say, no, we, you know, we want our values. Um, these guys would say, we want our children to be critically reflective. But at the same time, in fact, they're doing exactly what they, they would accuse the Christian parents of doing. And I, so my, my initial interest was just children have this right. Um, how should schools react? Schools are obliged to educate the children. How should schools react to the fact that parents, in fact, by and large, don't... Um, uh, ensure that their children have that, you know, get what they have a right to. Um, so that was where I was first interested in it. And my views, I think, at that time were very much, I thought children have a right to be autonomous and we should basically, everything should be organized to enable them to be autonomous. My, my views have changed some. I, I'm much more sympathetic, I think, now to the claims, not necessarily of parents, but of adults to want to be able to share values with their children, uh, to be able to... The, the interest children actually have in being... Um, yeah, they have an interest in being autonomous, but they also have an interest in really knowing uh, traditions and practices from the inside, um, of being raised with real connection to sort of embodied... Uh, uh, faith and moral practices. So I, I think I've sort of moderated my view some. I, I, I've also become much more interested not in in how schools, a bit, a bit less interested in the family and a bit more interested in schools, okay. if you like, um, for this particular question. Um, American schools, American public schools are entirely secular. My 
children have gone to American public schools, um, I do not think that they get a sort of value-neutral education. They get, a, they get an education which is highly value-laden, and some of the values are values that I think no sensible person would want their children being um, uh, maybe exposed to is fine, but they wouldn't want them inculcated. I sometimes tell this story. My first child uh, went in England. We, we lived in England for two years, and that's where she first went to elementary school. And she went to a Church of England school because in England most kids do, and, sure. and that was the local school, and we sent our kids to the local public school. Um, and there were religious icons, you know, there were crosses. And, and uh, I thought when she came back to the U.S. and she went to an, a public elementary school, there'd be no religious icons. But in fact, the first thing you see when you walk in that school is what I sort of jokingly call a religious icon. At, at the eye level of a six-year-old is a poster which advertises... General Mills sugar cereals, sure. right? Interesting. Now they call it the General Mills box tops campaign, sure. but that's not what that's not what a six-year-old sees. They see, you know, Lucky Charms and this, that, or the other. They're exposed to the religion is a religion of consumption, mm-hmm. and I uh, that's I'd sooner have my child exposed to a religion where basically the values are pretty good and decent, and at least the people who are promoting them really believe in them, than to a religion where the values are not decent or good, and the people promoting the values are paid to do it and sure. don't really believe in them. Sure. You know, they don't want... Uh, so uh, So I think, I think the schools, schools very often have a... They're very unreflective in the way that they just... Um, pass down the society, the mainstream society's values, whatever they are. And I would like to think about ways of interrupting that. Yeah. And I would imagine that uh, some institutions or, or locations or practices do a better or worse job of uh, that, that, that interruption. I wonder if uh, uh, that insight sort of brings us back to the earlier issues that you mentioned. I mean, the, uh, the distribution of educational opportunity and, and school choice. Uh, are, are these connected in some ways here? If you like, school choice brings together those two other interests. So, you know, ch- parents are going to... Ch- um, on the one hand, parents are often going to try and use choice to advantage their children sure. in a way that redistributes educational opportunities. On the other hand, they're also often going to use school choice to shelter their children from values that they don't want them to be exposed to. Uh, I think our school system has always had choice, and it's always been choice through the housing market. So it's always been the case that people can send their children to private schools if they've got the money and buy their children into uh, high-spending public schools if they've got the money, buy, buy it through property. Um, so there isn't, there isn't a non-school choice default. The default is school choice for the wealthy and not for anybody else. Um, and uh, I think that actually in the U.S. context, it's been... What's driven the interest in school choice and what's driven the debates around school choice has not really been, you know, religious schools, parents sheltering their children from values they don't want them exposed to. It's been much more about the distribution of opportunities. Um, And I think that well-designed, even not very uh, well-designed, explicit school choice systems can sometimes redistribute opportunity in a fairer, more egalitarian direction 
given what the default is, because the default is school choice for those who are connected and wealthy and advantaged. Okay, sure. So, so if I understand your view, it's the case that you hold that uh, since we've got school choice anyway, we're better served by uh, bringing that implied or tacit system into the light so that we can really tinker with it towards better outcomes. That's right. So that's right. If we do tinker with the mechanisms and tinker with them right. So I'm not. Uh, my my uh, governor recently, uh, two years ago, uh, they passed changes to the school voucher system in Milwaukee, um, which made it much less egalitarian, much less uh, directed at improving the quality of schooling for poor kids than it had been uh, for the first 20 years of its existence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do understand that it's not, it's, it's not that I'm an, I'm a very un, unenthusiastic supporter of uh, Milwaukee's vouchers, and now I'm not even sure I'm a supporter now that they've changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think I, th- I think of myself that way a lot. I think I'm an unenthusiastic supporter of lots of uh, lots of programs or reforms um, that I'd much rather we had. You know, I'd much rather we got rid of child poverty. Right. Um, but we're not going to. Nobody wants to get rid of child poverty. I mean, I do. You, you know, I'm sure you do. But um, th- it's not anything that's seriously on a policy agenda and isn't going to be in the in the near to middle term. And in the meantime, therefore, we have to look at schooling sure. as um, a, a way of mitigating. Um, how can we make schools mitigate to some extent the bad effects of child poverty? Um, yeah, yeah. So, 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 is it right then to say that your view is that uh, you know you think we've got to make something good with the context before us, right? Make something good with what we have, even if uh, the best escapes us or remains elusive. Good, that's right. So, so I sort of think of, I, you know, philosophers think purely as a philosopher, not thinking about policy. Mm-hmm. My uh, work has tended to be what, you, what I would call ideal theory, mm-hmm. thinking about what the best is, right. right? And I think that that can guide us in how we act, but it shouldn't fool us in how we act. So when we're acting, we're always acting against constraints. We're always acting in, a, in an environment that we didn't choose to be in and that we wouldn't have chosen to be in if we, you know, if we, if we could have chosen what environment to be in, we'd be in one where all the good things could be achieved at once. Sure. Uh, but we're not in that environment, and sometimes we're in an environment where there's very little improvement that can be made. I think that thinking about the best can help you think about what the improvement is. But I don't think what the improvement what the best thing to do now is is necessarily prefigurative of what the best would be. It's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't resemble very much what the best would be. It might not even really be a step Towards. toward the best. It might just be an improvement right now that actually doesn't help us get to the best. But it gets us uh, maybe a step away from some. Right, 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 exactly. A step away from sometimes that. And I think that as, as agents, as, as moral agents, we are obliged to, you know, be very self-conscious and explicit and careful about, about those choices. I find politicians, you know, politicians don't like doing that. Politicians always want to say there are no trade-offs being made. Everybody's going to gain from my policy, and that's rarely the case. And my policy will do all good things at once. There'll be no downside at all. And that's very rarely the case. Um, and sometimes a good, honest politician, at least when they're talking to themselves, should be saying, you know, what I'm going to do uh, is nothing like what the best would be. But it is what 
it is the right thing to do in these circumstances. Oh, wow. So in in the few moments that we've got remaining, I wonder if you might be able to tell us something about uh, the ways in which your work is moving forward or uh, future directions that you see for the ways in which questions are posed in philosophy of education. I mean, uh, what's out there? What's uh, on the horizon? Yeah, so I am been in my own work in the last 10 years, I would say, I've engaged a lot with... Um, institutional realities with empirical research. I've been very impressed lately with the quality of some of the work I've been seeing by people who really are animated, who are philosophically astute and animated by real-world problems. Um, so I think of uh, Jen Morton's work, for example, on non-cognitive skills, um, where she's been thinking about the way that people have been arguing for and implementing reforms around uh, improving ch the non-cognitive skills of poor children. And I actually, I'm not sure, I, don't want to, I couldn't speak for her, but I'm, I think that her, her work often suggests to me that the things that are happening are not necessarily wrong, mm -hmm. but she interrogates the kinds of arguments people make really astutely and reveals problems in the argumentation and, and, and reasons to be cautious. Uh, Mayor Levinson at Harvard is developing what seems to me a spectacularly interesting project um, of developing empirically grounded case studies which involve really difficult trade-offs. Her, her examples are in schools um, where teachers do, teachers or administrators uh, or leaders are making moral, they're making moral choices and we have not been very helpful to them in thinking about, you know, exactly how to make them, what are the right moral categories, how should they weigh them, how should they weigh the values when making the trade-offs. Um, uh, Jamie Olberg at uh, the University of Florida has been doing really interesting work on cognitive disability and what, uh, what should guide our educational provision for the cognitively disabled children. Uh, so real sort of, I've been very impressed with work which is really nice by younger people, um, which is grounded in real world problems, brings and develops philosophical um, thinking to those problems and in a way that's well enough integrated and well enough articulated that uh, social scientists who are doing research and policy makers and decision makers, including teachers themselves, um, might really be able to learn from that work. Harry Brighouse, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.